we're going to talk about the brief history of the ancient creeds of the church. To start, we can just ask, what is a creed? And creed comes from the Latin word credo, which just means I believe. So a creed is a statement of faith. And we'll see that there are different kinds of statements of faith. There's a, there are statements of faith that are used for instruction, that are for people to confess their faith, and then there are kind of theological statements of faith that are dealing with controversies. And so we're going to look at uh, five creeds in particular from the ancient church. But we start back with the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, Jesus said to make disciples by doing two things, by baptizing and by teaching. And the baptizing is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so a disciple should know something about the Father, about the Son, and about the Holy Spirit and should be able to express some sort of belief in the Father and uh, the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And so what the early church would do would they would have a basically a catechism type class, a new members class, we might call it, for new converts. And they would teach them to be able to confess their faith in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And so what we have before we have what we could call declarative creeds, we have interrogative creeds. Uh, that may be a contradiction in terms, but it's, it's basically uh, a series of questions like we do to this day. If you join our church, we ask you questions, and you assent to those questions if you want to be a member of our church. And so the, the original, if we can call them creeds, were interrogative. At baptism, they would ask the new converts to answer questions about their belief in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And we have something really interesting from 215 AD. It's called the Apostolic Tradition by Hippolytus. And what we read there is, is this description of a baptism. And when he who is to be baptized goes down to the water, let him who baptizes lay hand on him, saying thus, Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And who is being baptized shall say, I believe. In, in Latin, that would be credo. Let him forthwith baptize him once, having his hand laid upon his head. After this, let him say, Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit from the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died, and rose again on the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended into the heavens, and sat down on the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead? And when he says, I believe, let him baptize him the second time. And again let him say, Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And he who is being baptized shall say, I believe, and so let him baptize him a third time. This is before the Apostles' Creed, so these are questions, and we'll see how that developed into the Apostles' Creed. So there were questions. And which section of this is the biggest section? So there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Son, so there's a focus here on the Son. It says, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? That's it. And then there's a whole section about the Son, about who he is and what he did, and then there is the Holy Spirit with the church and the resurrection put in together under the Holy Spirit. Now, it looks like these questions were common in the western part of the church. And to think about creeds and to think about ancient church history, we need to think about the eastern church and the western church. And when we talk about the eastern church, it was the Greek-speaking church. And then the western church was the Latin-speaking church. And that 
introduced problems in the church because they were speaking two different languages. So there's the, the descendants of the Eastern churches. The main are the Orthodox churches of today, and the main descendant of the Western church is the Roman Catholic church, and then the Protestant churches that came out of that. So it looks like these questions were common in the Western part of the church with some variation. So there was no standardized form. Now, they were based on the Trinitarian formula of the Great Commission, supplemented with additional statements, especially about the Son. And when we talk about theology of the Son, we're talking about Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And so you will see that the creeds tend to be heavy on Christology, Christology. Theology is the doctrine of God. Christology, the doctrine of Christ pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So these tend to be heavy on the doctrine of Christ. And we'll see why that is so, especially in the Eastern part, because of controversies. Now, from the interrogative creeds, which required only credo, only assent, yes, I believe, it was a short step to declarative creeds, by which believers confess their faith positively, expressing what they believe. So instead of uh, do you believe, duh, 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 yes, I believe, it's what do you believe? And then the, the believers could state what they believe in the uh, words of the creed. Now, it looks like declarative creeds began to develop to instruct new converts not to declare in worship services. So it wasn't, at the beginning, creeds were not liturgical. They weren't used in the worship service. They were used in catechesis. They were used in instruction of new believers. Uh, now, oftentimes, in, in many churches, they're used as a public confession, but that wasn't their original use. The, one of the earliest ones we have from the, the, uh, the Western church, particularly, is what is called the Old Roman Creed. It looks like it began to be used in the second century, but the evidence for it is later, but it seemed to be known not only in the West, but also in the East, because it appears in Latin and in Greek. But it seems like this was one of the early ones to get some traction and to be used across the church. And this is what it says. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, and then in some versions it adds the life everlasting. So this was fairly early on. So this is in the second century where this began to be used for, uh, particularly for instruction of new believers. Now, uh, we're not going to follow chronology here because if we were, we would go from the old Roman creed to the what's often called the, the Creed of Nicaea and then the Nicene Creed, because historically that's, that's how they developed. The Apostles' Creed is later, but as you've probably picked up, if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it sounds very much like the, the old Roman Creed, such that some people just say it's the same thing, that it's, it's just different versions, and it, it really is. The first mention we have in the West, this is Latin, of the symbolum, Apostolorum comes from 390 AD. So the old Roman creed is circulating in the second century, but the first mention of the apostolic symbol, the apostolic, what we would call the apostolic creed, comes from 390 AD. And there was a tradition that was widely believed between the 400s and the 1400s. So a whole millennium of the church tended to believe this, that the apostles had gotten together before they scattered, 
And they said, well, let's go make sure we're going to preach the same thing. So let's make a declaration of faith. And let's say Peter said, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then Andrew added, maker of heaven and earth. And there are clever ways to divide the Apostles' Creed into 12 different declarations. And the, the, the tradition was that each of them had given one of, the, one of the articles. Now, this was a legend. It was debunked in the, the 1400s. But we really don't know how the Apostles' Creed became the standard in the Western Church. One idea is that it was pop- popular in Gaul, and Gaul is what we would call now mostly France. The church was, was healthier in France than it was in Rome. In 800, there was the reconstitution of the Holy Roman Empire. So let me back up a bit. We had the Roman Empire, which covered much of the northern Mediterranean, north of the Mediterranean Sea. The western part of that, well, it was conquered in the 400s by the the barbarians, the, the Germanic tribes. And so the western part of the Roman Empire was no more, which was kind of ironic because Rome was no longer part of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire had shifted to the east, to Constantinople, and it was more of a Greek thing. Uh, And so the Roman Empire was no longer Roman. So in 800, the Pope anointed Charlemagne as the new Holy Roman Emperor. So now in the west, there's the Holy Roman Empire, and in the east, there's the Roman Empire. And so it gets a little confusing here. But one of the Holy Roman Emperors... But one of them was Otto, Otto the Great in the 900s. And he was concerned about the sorry state of the church in Rome. And he wanted to renew the church in Rome, the church in his area. He was a Frankish king. In his area, it was more vital. So he sent monks from basically from France to Rome to try to renew the Roman church. And they took along with them their trusty old Roman creed. That's one of the ideas about how the old Roman creed, which was actually more Frankish than Roman, how it took over in Rome and then from there spread throughout the Western Church, the Latin Church, which eventually became uh, known as the Roman Catholic Church. So this is the Apostles' Creed as it eventually took place or as it eventually was, was formulated. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And if you have been in churches in the West that have recited creeds, this is probably the one that you have recited. And you can see it's, it's simple language, it's straightforward, and it tends not to be controversial because it wasn't born in controversy. It was born in, in faith. It was born out of the desire to confess faith and to train in faith. Now, this development of the old Roman creed added a few things. It added maker of heaven and earth to the section on God the Father Almighty. It added precision to the roles of the Holy Spirit and Mary in the conception of Jesus. The old Roman creed just said, born of the Holy Spirit and Mary. But here it it says, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So it, it, it assigns roles. It added the problematic and controversial 
clause, he descended into hell, which was not in the old Roman creed, and it adds the communion of saints to the section on the Holy Spirit and solidified the life everlasting as part of it. Now, that's, uh, that's what's going on in the West. Meanwhile, back in the East, controversy is raging. And what we have is in 318, the presbyter, Arius, began to teach this about the Son, that he was a creature, that he had a beginning, that he did not have true knowledge of the Father, and that he was subject to change and could sin, but did not in fact sin. And so he began to teach this. Now, his teaching involved the church in controversies for the next 60 years. What's called Arianism was his posture. When Constantine won control of the whole Roman Empire in 324, and this is before the Western Roman Empire fell, so the whole Roman Empire, East and West together, he was able to gain control of both, both sections of it in 324, and he found that the church was divided. And he wasn't a theologian himself, he was an emperor, and he wanted to unite the church to help unite the empire. So what does he do? He calls a council the council in Nicaea in 325, which was attended by between 220 and 300 bishops, mostly from the Eastern Church. The Creed of Nicaea that came out of that council reads like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same substance as the Father, through whom all things came to be, both the things in heaven and on earth, who for us humans and for our salvation came down and was made flesh, becoming human, who suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, who is coming to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit. Obviously, where is the emphasis here? It's on Christ, of course, and it's in response to a heretical challenge. And so you sense that the the language of this is more technical, it's more difficult, and that's because it's polemical, it's controversial. It's not like the Apostles' Creed. So this is the creed that came, as best as we can tell, came out of the Council of Nicaea. This creed contains several explicitly anti-Aryan clauses of the substance of the Father, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same substance as the Father. Now, this last clause uses the Greek word homoousios, homoousios. So homo means the same, and ousios means substance. So this, this expression, same substance, is sometimes translated in English consubstantial or coessential with the Father. And it's emphasizing that the Father and the Son have the same essence, the same substance. After the creed, but not part of the creed, there were explicit condemnations of the teaching of Arius. So explicitly, they they said, whoever says this, like Arius says, that's not right, that's condemned. It looked like the matter was settled, and most of the Arians signed the document and said, okay, we'll go along with this. Arius himself did not. And later he petitioned a later emperor to restore him, but he died the day before his restoration. So he died still excluded from the church. And what happened here is that the battle continued to rage and different emperors supported different sides. And so we have what we would call Nicene emperors 
or, or Nicene emperors and Aryan emperors. And so if the Aryan emperor uh, was in charge, then he would promote the Aryan bishops and, and, and kick out the, the Nicene bishops and then vice versa. And so it went back and forth with politics getting very, very involved in the church. Also, other heresies surfaced along the way. So instead of putting out this, this major heresy, uh, other heresies began to surface. Now, curiously, curiously, there is very little mention of the Council of Nicaea or of the Creed of Nicaea during the following 30 years. You would think they would just trot this out and say, hey, it's decided. The Creed says this, the Council said this, it's been decided, go away, Arians, or submit, or repent. But there's very little mention of it in the next 30 years. What churches did is they kept using their customary creeds, since they were designed for the people not for theologians. So the Apostles' Creed is a creed designed for the people. The Old Roman Creed, the faith of the people. This is the first creed, the Creed of Nicaea, is the first creed that is a theologian's creed. It's a bishop's creed. And so it didn't, it didn't take root in the church quickly. And few were happy with this word homoousios. It wasn't necessarily clear, and then when you try to get it from Greek into Latin, caused difficulties, and so not, people were not happy with it. And at least four different groups formed with four different Christologies. So we have the homoousios, same substance. We have the homoousios, and the only difference there is one letter, which is uh, I, iota. It's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. It's the, it's the difference here. But it's a theological difference between same substance and similar substance. And then there were the homoios, who were saying, well, they're similar. We're not going to really say how. And then there were the anomoios, that dissimilar. So there were four different Christologies that were competing in the church. And the different emperors had their, their favorite Christology. So this has gotten messier rather than cleaner. Finally, the Emperor Theodosios, who was a Nicene emperor, called for the Council of Constantinople in 381. So 325, Council of Nicaea, 381, Council of Constantinople, which included bishops only from the east. So if, they, if it's bishops only from the east, not from the west, then it's not an ecumenical council, is it? Because to be ecumenical, that means it has to have bishops representing the entire Christian church. So it wasn't an ecumenical council in the beginning. We'll see what happened there. They ratified the creed that we call the Nicene Creed, but it's not clear where this thing came from, since it's not the same as the Creed of Nicaea, but it sounds sort of like it. So this gets confusing. So they ratified the Nicene Creed, but it's different from the Creed of Nicaea. And so ancient historians considered it a ratification of the Creed of Nicaea, but they obviously expanded it and adapted it. They didn't just say, Nicaea did the, did the job, we're just going to put our stamp to it. You'll see that it's bigger than that, and it's, it's, uh, it's expanded. And so it's a mouthful, but it's more accurate to call it the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, because it has roots in Nicaea, but it's obvious that the Council of Constantinople put their work into it. And this is what it says. And if you grew up in certain traditions, you probably grew up reciting this creed or memorizing this creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, 
very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? It's hard enough to read, let alone memorize and recite. So we see that this is a different type of creed than the Apostles' Creed. And it sounds like the Creed of Nicaea, but what do we find? It's very much expanded, and so they've added more things to it. In the Council of Chalcedon, now we are in 451, Council of Nicaea 325, the Council of Constantinople 381, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, they declared that the Council of Constantinople was ecumenical after all. So it wasn't ecumenical, but then a later ecumenical council declared the previous one to be ecumenical, even though only Eastern bishops had attended. They were surprised by the creed of Constantinople, what I'm calling the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed, because they were unfamiliar with it. And so this Nicene Creed hadn't taken root yet in the church. They were unfamiliar with this creed. And so the Creed of Nicaea didn't take root immediately, and the Creed of Constantinople didn't take root immediately either. However, they were convinced that it was, in fact, a ratification and amplification of the Creed of Nicaea, and they ratified it as well. So we have the Creed of Nicaea. We have the Constantinopolitan development of the Creed of Nicaea, And then we have the Council of Chalcedon saying what they did, we're going to ratify that because we think that really expresses what the Council of Nicaea wanted to express. The Western Church problematically added the words in brackets. And if I go back to the creed itself, the last paragraph, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and then in the Western Church they added, and from the Son and from the Son. In Latin, it's filioque, so the filioque clause. And when the Greek Christians heard the Latin Christians confessing the Nicene Creed and saying, and from the Son, they were aghast because that was a Western addition to the Creed. And it is one of the reasons that there was an eventual split between East and West in 1054 AD. That's why there's been ever since, there's been the the Orthodox churches in the East, the Roman Catholic Church in the West. But it was part of the reason was because of this innovation that the West introduced into this creed, which is a whole other topic about from whom does the Holy Spirit eternally proceed, from the Father only or from the Father and the Son, and it actually represents a different approach to the doctrine of the Trinity. The Council of Chalcedon also made its own creed. So here we go, the last one we're going to look at, which focuses exclusively on the nature of Christ. It doubles down on that word, homoousios. And notice what it does here, because this is fascinating. 
It's saying that Jesus Christ is the same substance as the Father in his divine nature and also the same substance as us in his human nature. So the earlier creed said he is homoousios with the Father, and now it's saying not only is he homoousios with the Father, he's homoousios with us as well. So it's doubly applying that, that word. And this is what the Chalcedonian Creed says. We then, following the Holy Fathers, you see their attitude is we're not innovating here, we're following them. We, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and body, consubstantial, homoousios, with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial, homoousios, with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. This is very dense. This is very theological. This is quite a mouthful. This is not something you'd stand up in church and recite. This is a theologian's creed, and it's all about Christology here. It's all Christology. So they, they focused on that and developed it even more. Now, with this creed, we reach the end of the development of Christology, which is confessed as orthodoxy to this day in the historic churches, including ours. So basically, since the Council of Chalcedon, Christology has, I won't say there's been no development, we may have learned some things, but basically what it means to believe in Jesus was fixed in the church from that time. For example, our Westminster Confession of Faith. Try to hear the language of Chalcedon in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in the 1600s, so more than a millennium later, and it says this, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. This was written in English, and so that's clearer, but it's very much like the, the Creed of Chalcedon, and it also has echoes of, of the other creeds. So the theologians in the Westminster Assembly were, were not trying to innovate. They were not trying to do anything new. They were saying, yes, they got it right, and we are confessing the same thing. And to this day, if somebody asks you, who is Jesus, and you say he is fully God and is fully man, then you are a Chalcedonian. 
you are indebted to the work of our forebears who hammered that out in the midst of controversy in order for us to be able to say, well, yes, that's, that's who Jesus is. That's clear. Everybody knows that who's a Christian. Well, we know that because, one, it's taught in the Bible, but there's no verse in the Bible that says just that. There were theologians who, in the midst of controversy, they hammered that out so that we would be able, centuries later, to be able to confess an orthodox, a biblical Christology. So what do we have? Here's a summary. The Old Roman Creed, a baptismal instruction guide in the West, Apostles' Creed, later development of the Old Roman Creed, and these are people's creeds. These are church creeds. These are instructional creeds and creeds that, that normal Christians can confess and understand what they're saying. Creed of Nicaea, the Declaration of the Council of Nicaea, Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, development of the Creed of Nicaea at the Council of Constantinople, and then the Creed of Chalcedon, the Christological definition of Council of Chalcedon in 451. There are other creeds. There are actually many other creeds, but these are the major creeds that came out of the the two sections, the geographical sections of the church, and that continue to exercise influence to this day. The Old Roman Creed, not so much in itself, but through the Apostles' Creed, exercises influence. The Creed of Nicaea, not so much by itself, but through the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, those two particularly. And then the Creed of Chalcedon continues to exercise influence over our Christology, as we say very easily, well, of course, Jesus is fully God and fully man, one person, two natures, forever. And we're being very Chalcedonian, and we should tip our hat to the brave bishops of the day who were able to formulate this for our benefit, for the benefit of the the rest of the history of the church.